Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I'm bringing you Dr. Mark Toops, who is an internal medicine physician in Texas, Christus Health, and also involved with informatics and has some uh, unique historical perspectives about informatics in general. And he sent me an article that he authored that we're going to talk about. And we'll talk about the date of that article as well. But Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So Mark, thanks for joining us. And if you would, tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got to where you are today. Well, it was a serpiginous and serendipitous path. I'm a practicing internist. I finished and came home in 1980 after a residency at UT Southwestern in Dallas and had a patient that had a question of organic lead poisoning. I went to what was called our medical library at that time, expecting what I'd had in the medical school. What I got was a nice person who put in a teletype request to a uh, regional library, and I got back a single article that was about uh, lead and gasoline. And I thought, mm. well, that's, that's mm. peculiar. And I remember seeing how they had done it at the medical school, typing questions or keywords into a computer. And I had a computer and I thought, well, I'm the doctor. I know what the question is and what the words are. I should be able to do this. And found out that I couldn't do it at that time, that individual doctors really weren't invited to that. I did take offense to it and then began a search. How could I do this? Finally, a computer store friend of mine gave me an article from a CPM journal introducing me to Lockheed, the aerospace company's company called Dialog, which vended databases in those days. And one database they vended was Medline. Shortly after that, I encountered a young lady and she was 15 and had thrombocytopenia, a number of other things. And I was going down the primrose path and not really thinking she had probably lupus. But I thought, you know, I have my dialogue thing. I can do my own Medline search. I'm going to go do my first search. Well, the search really told me that the way I was approaching it was two-dimensional. This was a three-dimensional world. It introduced me to some nuances I hadn't thought about. And by the end of that day, we had her in Houston being plasma freeze for TTP. And that search cost me $3.52. It saved a young girl's life from my ignorance. And that began me on a rather passionate drive for information at the bedside. I knew it was now possible. And I did not regard the restrictions that we had up to then to be realistic. And so that began it. It then ended up being a presentation at a five-state regional medical librarian conference where I had a job in Beaumont. <laughs> I didn't have mm -hmm. to be particularly pleasant. And I thought, well, the world won't change if we don't make it explicit. I got a call the following week from the head of my medical school, Dr. Selden, asking me to come up there and to say what I had said in Arkansas. And I did. And then that led to an offer to come and do that at the bedside. And so I actually taught at uh, the medical school for two years, every other week I came up, we did traditional medical school rounds, gathered questions, went to a computer that was near the bedside, but not at the bedside, and then taught postgraduate programs and things like that. 
By then, the 90s were approaching. I was given the chance to create a department of medical informatics, and I realized I'm a local doctor. I'm, I'm not an educator. I'm not an academician, and I just need to go home. And I didn't feel like I was abandoning the passion. I did feel guilty about that fork in the road. But the internet was close. It was very close. So I, I think within a year or two, I did my first internet search using a program called Mosaic. And, and I felt the world would not be as perfect as it could be with people really understanding the structure of these uh, searches perfectly. Grateful Med was there. I think PubMed was not too far around the corner. And so I left it to the academicians. So what are you doing now? Well, that path led me to be familiar with computers, which I stayed. I then was known in my community to be a, a computer geek, not that I could program one line. I helped people and then instituted Meds America as our billing system, as our first computer. We then ultimately went on to uh, institute our own installation of EMDs as our EMR we then joined as private practitioners, joined Christus about 11 years ago, were converted to Athena. In the meantime, in the hospital, we used Meditech, and I became involved in that, ultimately became uh, a part-time employee of Christus to support Meditech uh, in our hospital. And so I was familiar with Meditech, familiar with Athena, and I was on the Athena advisory board, and then I was had become the uh, vice president medical affairs for the hospital. So I was becoming more administrative as time went on. And we decided to go from Athena to Epic for our ambulatory clinics. And I was approached to say, you know, Athena well, you know, Meditech well, uh, <laughs> you've learned how to be an administrator and you understand how to take care of patients. Would you become the bridge for us, for your friends and colleagues from Athena to Epic? And so that's uh, basically what I do now. So in most places, they call that role the CMIO. Did they give you the title or just gave you the responsibility? The, I'm a regional director. I'm not actually an official CMIO. And I, don't, <laughs> and I don't have the official credentials of being a CMIO. So it's, it's fine with me. I, I don't want to step on the people who got the certifications toes. <laughs> Nonsense. You're doing the work, it sounds like. And we have been doing the work long before most of us were... were even, uh, let's see, when you published your article, which we'll get into in a minute here, I was uh, I was 15 and my Atari 800 was like the best thing I had ever seen. So, uh, but we'll talk about that in a second. I did see a local news article about you, particularly around COVID, that was talking about your involvement with telehealth. Are you involved with that initiative, leading it or participating in it? How do you play a role there? All the above. On March 6th, we were following what was happening with COVID fairly closely. I knew that we had some very superficial experience in one of our clinics. Well, I shouldn't say superficial. We had some experience doing telemedicine. We were just getting into that in our Tyler area and in our Houston area through one of our good sister, Sister Roxanne Pope. And I raised the question of what are our telehealth services, our capabilities, what do we have, what equipment do we have? What's education? How fast can we stand this up? Because we needed it yesterday. And within a week, we had all 150 of our clinicians in CPG able to do telehealth visits. So it was it was fast. It was furious. Very dynamic process. It matured. It's, and it's still maturing to this day. Yeah, sure. So it's, yeah. It continues to evolve. But 
Personally, how do you enjoy doing the telehealth visits? You have seen the spectrum of medicine from long before computers were involved to now telehealth being kind of a, a, a new, relatively new field of, of medicine here. What do you think? Well, I think what happened, one of the concerns that our clinicians had is did they lose the, the physical touch and I mean appropriate touch and were patients going to miss that? Oddly enough, one of the things that's apparent now is that physicians miss it. We certainly need to get over our transference of that need and, and provide the patient beyond our own need to have that, but it's real. And so I think it was a mourning period. There was that period of being unfamiliar, uh, period of being afraid of what are the medical legal consequences if I don't get this exactly right. It was countered, however, by an overwhelming appreciation by the patients. And I can summarize it, and, and every time I give this quote, every region calls me and says, hey, that was my patient. How did you know that? And this is an elderly lady, and what she said at the end of a visit is, I'm going to um, love you now and hug you later because you reached out to me when I was afraid. Hmm. We actually took every cancellation that we'd had, every person who thought they'd want to cancel and made sure they understood that we could continue their care uninterrupted by the telehealth methods. And we challenged ourselves to be able to do that. How do you do a physical examination? So we created a compendium of exam findings that you can make. We found that we actually do a better fall avoidance or a fall assessment when we can see inside of a person's environment. So it's really been rewarding. I, I think it's going to continue well beyond uh, COVID. Uh, it's going to mature to its appropriate place. And not all visits are appropriate for telemedicine. So we're going to be more discerning about that. Great insights. I totally agree. And I'm seeing the provider community accepting this more and more. I had a couple of providers that just would not really adapt well to this, but under the pressure of COVID, the desire to treat patients and just felt the need to meet them where they are. And if that's what had to be done, and it had to be done over a telephone or it had to be done over FaceTime or whatever it is, they got the job done. And I really applaud our physician community that stretched their own boundaries a little bit and really pushed themselves to get out there and, and try a new way of medicine and do it successfully. So I thought it was it was really good. That's been a remarkable thing in a New England journal about the stresses of this the writer had said unexpectedly the physicians had done everything that you just praised them for. And I said, my difference with the opinion is it wasn't unexpected to me. I, I expect that and, mm. and have always found that our physicians stand up creativity, skill sets that are just phenomenal and are willing to do that. One of the, sometimes the tools we give them help. So we gave them a tool of giving them a list of their patients that were considered high risk by a group of criteria that we applied and had the computer system tell us who met those criteria. So they could for sure decide, can I do an appropriate telemedicine visit for this person that I really don't want to get out into the world? So I want to get to that article that you wrote here. You told me this was written on a original Mac. So you, first of all, you're quite a rebel by not adopting an IBM machine at the time, because I think that was the, the standard at the time. So uh, I applaud your, your rebelliousness there. In terms of the article, and the title here, it's from the Southwestern Internal Medicine Conference, Medical Telecommunications, Fundamental Changes in the Art and Science of Medicine. 
And you said something that's really profound, particularly back in 1985. In this article, you said, the availability of easy-to-use microcomputers and medical information retrieval systems will result in fundamental and important changes in medical practice. That's 1985. You were decades ahead of everyone else. Yes, you had that one experience, but how did you know that that was going to be the future of medicine? Well, oddly enough, it had to be. To me, it didn't seem like a choice. It, it seemed like a moment of recognition and action. And, and that's why I was such a, a zealot. I mean, I have to admit I was an unembarrassed <laughs> zealot in those days. But to me, it had to be. It was just so obvious that the, the problems we had weren't technological. We had plenty of machines. We had plenty of talented surgeons who were very dexterous in their maneuvering where we were challenged is what did we know? And I would constantly ask people, how do you know that? How do you know what you know? How do you get the comfort level of what you have? There was an interesting article that I read in the context of learning about this. And in 1976, there'd been studies that it was absolutely clear that laser therapy for diabetics saved vision. Absolutely nobody doubted it anymore. It was proven over and over again. And they began to study the dissemination of information. By 1979, by mailing, by phone calls, by every method available in those days, 30% of general doctors knew that. Hmm. The American College of Medicine had, was producing what was called the Hepatitis Knowledge Database in 1980. And it started it's kind of an outline form, which then had an abstract form. And it outlaid the, the questions about hepatitis. What is it that we would need to know about hepatitis? And what did we know from the literature? And it outlined it. There was a building someplace that apparently contained all the original articles and papers uh, to it. And it was to me, it's like, well, then why don't I have access to that electronically? It's, it's there. It's known. It's digital. Um, so to me, it was how do we disseminate information? How do we know what we know? And here's this wonderful, powerful tool that was actually as simple as, as you, you can imagine. I give you a lot of credit because this was pre-internet, to be honest. This was obviously the web was there, but it wasn't really discovered and being used. And there wasn't web browsers and there certainly wasn't a graphical user interface. You're talking about bulletin board days. You're talking about the old 300 baud dial-up modems that you were probably using back in those days. That's uh, remarkable that you saw the leap in technology, that this would be at the point of care that we would need that type of information to change the trajectory of a patient. That's exactly right. And I mean, and we did. Uh, one of the things that we, the, the format we ultimately adopted is I installed a computer in the residence library. It's just a little one room room on the sixth floor of Parkland. And the funny story about the internet, there was an MIT student who used to, would keep getting on our computer and I'd have to shoo him away. And the first time I logged into the internet, the little chat bubble above his head in my memory of him, when I would say, hey, kid, what are you doing? The chat bubble said, I'm on the internet. Mm -hmm. And so here was a guy who was on the internet from MIT long before I knew it, that that was a, an object of desire. But yeah, we took the model of traditional rounds, which we were all familiar with, medical students, internists, residents, sometimes the attending to go around and see all the patients. And what I wanted to instill was curiosity. It was okay not to know. 
It was okay to be bewildered and to wonder and to be curious. And whatever we were curious about, we would come back and see, could we find information about it? And, and I can say there was never something that we were curious about that we didn't refine our information and usually correct reasonably major errors in our thought. I think we were the first one to encourage our radiology brethren to do an aspiration of a perirenal abscess in those days. Interventional radiology was just coming into its sake, and we found that in people that were on dialysis that had perinephric abscesses, that a prolonged course of genomycin, which was equally deadly in those days to her already existing renal failure, might be avoided if she was able to be aspirated and didn't have to go through surgery. And that was just one example. It was every two weeks when I was there, we, it was remarkable. Back when I was in medical school and uh, when I was in college in medical school, the computerization was starting, I would say. There were still racks and racks of journals in our medical school library, and we were able to do more self-service. We could go and, and put in the computer, hey, I'm looking for this term, and, and we could then be directed towards aisle 400 to go find your journal, open it up, and photocopy it. Certainly, it's different today. How are you keeping current today? What's your method of reducing that, what's supposedly a 10-year learning curve from the bench, research bench, to the clinician's hand? Well, that's some of the things that we, we undertook from the academic thoughts. Dr. Gene Wilson, probably to me the best internist America has, has seen within my lifetime, one of the editors of Harrison Textbook of Medicine in those days, and I was fortunate to have him as a longtime teacher and mentor, pushed us on a lot of questions. And, and some of the questions had to do with what's called literacy and fluency. And literacy was, I knew how to use a computer and I knew how to ask a question of Medline. And fluency was when I could turn it into action to take care of a, a, a patient. Well, by 2000, you actually had full text digital archives that were available through PubMed Central. I think in the mid-1990s, uh, there were more digital characters in the world than there were printed characters in the world by the Gutenberg Project. So back in those days, what I'd settled on was to have a couple of basic journals that I looked to just to kind of keep me aware of what other people thought might be important in me taking care of patients, and it sometimes applied. And those were probably the Annals of Internal Medicine, which I still read every week these days, New England Journal of Medicine, so I can keep up with the esoteric, and JAMA was not as good then as I think it is today. But then there wasn't a question that I, I stayed with those journals. I used those more to alert me to something that I might want to know more about, and then I would go do a literature search to look at uh, what Dr. Wilson used to call the preponderance of evidence, okay? Uh, or if something was said not to be possible, I would look to see was it within the realm of conceivability, and if it was, what were the characteristics of that information? Was it something I could believe in and then put into practice? So, so I've always used since then anything from textbooks which are quite dated to online information. I love the new Dynamed, but the, the medical textbooks now do what we dreamed of then. Dr. Wilson, being an editor of Harrison's, had asked me to uh, review the original CD-ROM version. It took me six months. He finally got after me for not having sent it to him. And what I sent him was basically one sentence. It was a reasonable representation of the paper production. 
<laughs> However, it lacked links. And now you were right. We weren't on 300 baud modems. We were on 1200. And then by the time I reviewed the textbook, it was maybe up to 14.4. But it, it did not have links to articles. It didn't have links to videos of, say, aspiration of a need or remind somebody how to do that. It didn't have anything that we enjoy today. I think he got miffed with me and he sent me back a one word reply, bandwidth. I loved mm -hmm. him. I didn't, I wasn't miffed with him at all. I understood exactly what he was getting at, but I sent him back one word, time. Now, 14.4 went to 56.6 to pretty much what you have on your desk today. It wasn't that gigantic a leap to believe in what these medical textbooks could be. And Harrison's was making no effort to be there in those days. And I wanted him to kind of feel uncomfortable about it. Again, great insights. So you have an epic go live coming up. When, when are you going live with this? That's a good question. We're, <laughs> scheduled, we're scheduled to go live in September uh, with COVID. Uh, we understand things can be fluid, uh, yeah, fluid sure. but we're working on that. And we're, uh, we've had a really interesting thing. We have a significant number of doctors who are very comfortable in Athena and have been in EMR. So we've done a lot of work on migration trying to limit what one would have to abstract and trying to work on how things are done in Athena that can be bridged to for a doctor to do them in Epic without having a nervous breakdown. So it's it's been really interesting work. One of the things where Epic, I found, has been really powerful is that just-in-time information retrieval. You can put links into an alert that pops up that could take someone to a resource, whether that's uh, a video stored on your own servers or whether it links out to a journal article. Or... So if somebody's treating congestive heart failure and you've noticed they don't seem to be on a beta blocker, that you could drive them towards that resource so that they could learn and, and understand what is the current literature saying. I want you to react to this though. That's today. The future, and it's not that far off with Epic, is a, a tool they're calling Cosmos. And what Cosmos does is it will look at your patient that's in front of you and compare it to all of the hundred and or close to 200 million records that they will have in Epic and then say, hmm, your patient looks kind of like this. Have you considered this diagnosis? Have you considered this treatment? The latest research says your patient might value from A and not B. What are your thoughts about getting to that level of just-in-time information retrieval? Well, I'm actually glad you brought up Cosmos. So in our Epic, we have everything from on your dashboard, announcements for you, links for you that are important either to internal documents and handbooks to external documents and review articles or whatever, certainly built in our BPAs and uh, pop-ups. We have links to that. It goes back to that question you had, how do you encompass the information out there? How do you digest it and understand it? That's why in 1985, we wanted to be a fundamental part of medical education because it's not. You, you need to understand the statistics of it. You need to understand what the preponderance of evidence means, what's credible. I mean, it's, it's a study almost in, in and of itself, but young medical doctors need to, to encompass it. So it's just as easy as using a stethoscope. So how do you do that today? Back in those days, you didn't believe anything that wasn't peer-reviewed, double-blinded, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
With COVID, all of those things went out the window. Anything that was known yes, was did. getting thrown at you. So, <laughs> you know, the next thing you know, somebody's taking uh, hydrochloroquine and the next guy's saying it's going to kill you. And trying to be judicious to say, where's there a study and do we actually know? Two, very interesting. We have HIE, which is collecting data very much the way that Epic would and being able to use, turn that big database into clinical revelations and understanding. And here comes Cosmos. Cosmos, where we can have gigantic, massive data sets that can make a patient be very much like the patient I'm dealing with and present me information. And I have to be expert enough to turn that information into action. I better know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's both a wonder and a marvel to us, and it's also a challenge to our skills. I'm real excited to have it. We don't. I, I learned today we are not quite a member of the Cosmos universe yet, but I suspect we will be. But it's going to be very interesting. I I, I would love for the the bigger the data set, the more interesting and effective we're going to be able to use the information. I'm finding that the information is now. We can make it available. Now it's that curiosity factor. And that other thing that you mentioned is time. I gave a talk this year at HIMSS and we had brought IBM Watson into Epic so that it was integrated. And all you had to do was click one little button and you could ask in natural language a pharmaceutical question connected to micrometics. And so you could ask if there was a drug interaction and not have to use like keyword search to speak it. And you would get an answer that would pop up and the artificial intelligence would give you that answer. And it definitely helped, but there was resistance. And the resistance is time that the providers are scrambling to get from one patient to the next, that to take the time to look something up is probably the biggest barrier to entry. We have the tools now. So I'm interested in your thoughts around how now that there's all this data, now it's a matter of searching through it all to make it condensed and digestible. Are we well, there? I'd go back. <laughs> I'd go back to that's why you introduce it in medical school because I've cheated, right? I've done it for forty years, so I can do it very fluidly. While I'm with the patient, I'm doing searches. When I'm in a meeting, the two years I spent as vice president of medical affairs, I cheated all through those meetings. I had an iPad sitting there when people were arguing. I was accessing the data right then and there, and I could throw it out just like I had always known it comes under a term uh, that I read once that's kind of challenging to me about cynical informaticists. And when I read, and when I read that, I thought, no, I'm not. <laughs> but <laughs> actually, you can be, and you have to be careful because you can wield piece of information. And if you're not, you don't have the integrity to do it in a thoughtful and balanced and discerning way. Uh, you can cheat in bad ways, and you, and you don't want to do that. So what happens is the more you do it, the more you incorporate it as part of something you just do every day. Every time you get ready to write an order, you should ask yourself, how do I know what I know? And if you're not absolutely, and I mean absolutely in the most humble way, certain that this is not going to harm somebody and it's going to help them, and you understand the parameters, then sign that prescription. If you don't, take a pause and go look it up. I wish I had that advice when I started all the way back so many years ago. That's really, really good stuff. So 
Mark, I do want to thank you. We're just at the 30-minute mark here. This has been a fantastic conversation. Your insights from 1985 all the way through today are just remarkable. And you're that internist that's at the point of care, cutting edge, and yet with 40-plus years experience, uh, I'm just in awe. So thank you for, for joining us and for all you have done for informatics just by being a practitioner over the years. I think that's that's awesome. I appreciate your podcast and the, uh, what, what you give all of us. And so thank you for doing it. And thank you for letting me be part of it. That is our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn and send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.